Welcome to Fundamentally Human, a podcast about mental health topics unpacked in an easy to understand way. My name is Shervin and I'm your host. Let's get started. A topic we've covered a few times on the podcast is about culture and generational gaps and how they've both played a role in our identities. While some of the themes have been similar among many of the listeners, I do want to say that each and every single person, no matter how you identify as, you guys all have your own experiences, your own feelings, and your own thoughts. Some of our parents might be immigrants. Some of us might be immigrants ourselves. Some of us might be firstborn or an only child or a second child or the baby of the family. Some of us are male, female, non-binary, transgender, cisgender, and so much more. I hope that by hearing a different perspective, it can help fill in some of the gaps we might have about our own families, our own identities, and about our own cultures. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Zhang, the author of Why is Grandma So Weird?, where he talks about his journey of immigration as a third culture kid. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. <laughs> Thanks, Jervin, for your generous introduction. Super stoked to be on your podcast and about the launch of my new AAPI children's book. Um, so my name is Daniel, and I am a second-generation Chinese-Canadian immigrant who spent seven years of my childhood in Switzerland. I'm basically an example of a third culture child, someone who was raised in a culture that is different from that of their ethnic background. The displacement brings a sense of otherness or lack of belonging, which is something that I've struggled with a lot over the years. So with the word displacement, can you explain what you mean by that in the case of living somewhere else that's different from your own culture? For me, I think the word displacement means just taken out of where you're really comfortable with and placed into an environment that is completely different. Um, being born in China, I was surrounded by people who looked like me and food that I enjoyed. And taking that and putting it in Western society, in Switzerland in particular, um, was a huge culture shock to me. Um, everybody looked different. We ate different food. We spoke different languages. And that displacement really put, really shocked me into, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. It sounds like, you know, I really appreciate your use of the word displacement here because really when it boils down to it, it means you're out of place, out of sorts. And in a very broad context, it's how you look in this case, how you sound, how you look, what you say and what you eat, all these external factors that make you different from others. But inside you generally have similar organs, the similar blood is kind of running through each of our bodies physically, you know, and we all have different thoughts and feelings that make us who we are. You know, you can have two Chinese kids in the room and they're completely different people, or you can have two white people in the room and they're completely different people. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, I talk to people of all different cultures and every single person on different levels, of course, experience some sort of displacement. How old were you when you first realized, oh, shoot, I look different from everyone else in Switzerland? When did you realize this? 
I think the realization came pretty early onwards. Um, I remember, I think I was in preschool when I first heard of Ching Chong's being hurled in my direction. Oh, yeah. Um, That's, I think, growing up as an Asian in Western society, you're always kind of just associated with the East Asian blend, either Korean, Chinese, or Japanese, and they just assume Mm -hmm. it's all one culture. Um, So, like, pretty early onwards, having either Konnichiwa or Nihao just said to me randomly on the street made me realize that, you know, I am visibly different and people are able to see right away that I'm not one of them. Um, And I think that definitely plays into the word displacement as well, because, like, physically, I know that I'm not in my parents' country, but also culturally, they make me feel that I am not present. Can you expand on that? What do you mean culturally you're not present? I think when we moved over, I was still, or at home, I still live as if I was in China. Um, Mm. And I carry a lot of that over into my, into the public sphere, essentially, um, where either on the streets or during school, I act or talk or eat in a certain way that's different from the people around me, from my classmates, from my teachers, from my friends who were not Asian. That in itself, I think, is cultural displacement. I appreciate you sharing examples about that because it reminds me when, you know, in elementary school, I went to a school that was primarily probably like 90% of the students were Italian. And I remember bringing my own uh, thermos container with like rice and fish and it smelled. And then everyone else was bringing like sandwiches, lasagna, pasta, things like that. I remember being so jealous and being so ashamed of my lunch that I would try to eat it somewhere else. Or every time I take a (laughs) bite, I would close the lid on it because I'm just like, oh, this kind of smells and people are kind of giving me weird looks. And I actually have the thermos to this day. We still use it. (laughs) So it brings back a lot of memories whenever I see it. And, you know, when I think about these memories as a kid, I don't know about you, but for me, it was always kind of like, oh, it is what it is. It happened and not really think much of how it impacted me. But Mm -hmm. now as someone who's an adult and actively and consciously thinking about these things, you know, it doesn't matter if you were a minority or not. Well, it does matter. But what I want to say is that everyone goes through different differences as they grow up. For me, it was looking and different eating differently using chopsticks when others used forks in elementary school and how that impacted me was that I just felt ashamed actually of being Chinese of having a weird name compared to everyone else in my class and that quickly dissolved by the time I hit university because everyone else had unique names and when I think about my majority counterparts in this case my Italian classmates you know, I wonder, and I should ask them actually, you know, did they feel any differences or how was it for them to see someone Chinese in their class? And they probably mm-hmm. don't see or meet a lot of Chinese people when you're like five, six year olds and you're in a big Italian family. So, you know, it doesn't matter if someone's a majority and minority, 
Well, it does, like I said, but I think we all have different perspectives to learn from. And that's why talking about these things can be really helpful because we teach each other and fill in the gaps of what each person doesn't know. Because maybe there's a way for us to express ourselves so other people can understand us better or vice versa. Yeah, I think I totally agree. It actually kind of saddens me thinking back about all the times that I didn't have lunch because it smelled or I had to cover up in case people were asking questions. I really wish that people were, or, you know, mini me many years ago would be able to accept the cultural differences and be proud of, you know, my, the food that my family eats or my favorite food or whatever. Um, But it's just real reality that when you're placing child A and child B side by side beside each other and there are differences people are going to compare and that comparison is often resulting either from ignorance of other people's culture or just frankly a minority that's not part of your daily social life and it's not something that you're used to which is why I think talking about it and exposure and overexposure almost of these issues would be able to help normalize the cultural differences and hopefully help immigrant children who are going through the same things not have as bad of a time. Yeah, and I just think back when you talk about the word comparison, a lot of times we think about comparing ourselves in social media and For us, that was a bit later on in our lives. We didn't really have social media when we were in elementary school. I pretty much didn't use Instagram and Snapchat until I was in university. That's when it started becoming more popular. But thinking about what you said just now, comparison started when we were young. When we just looked at other people and we compared ourselves, why didn't we look that way? Why didn't we have those same foods? Or I remember asking my mom for the ocean-wise snack kits where it's like a cracker <laughs> with like the salmon the tuna. or tuna. The yeah. yeah, that stuff. Or like um, Lunchables, Pizza Pops. For my American listeners, what do you guys call it? Hot Pockets? <laughs> <laughs> Things like that. And So from a very early age, we've already been comparing ourselves with others, at least as a minority and at least as someone who grew up looking very different from others. And I mean, I'm very lucky to have been born and raised in Vancouver because in high school, I think half of the, are the kids still, I guess they're still kids, half the kids in high school were uh, Asian. So that helped a lot. And then in university, you kind of see everyone, especially being in the science field, there are a lot of Asian people there as well. At what age did you say you came to Vancouver, Daniel? I moved to Vancouver when I was eight, and I definitely had a very similar experience as you did, where your classmates were Italian, mine were Swiss, um, and I was really the only Asian in my class. Um, it was always, it was almost as if I was a rare commodity, um, and I almost felt like I was being looked at through a looking glass. Vancouver, however, Vancouver's massive Asian population helped normalize a lot of the weirdness that was associated with simply being Asian. Um, and that kind of eliminated the feeling of cultural dysphoria almost. 
And I know that this topic, this idea of being displaced, especially culturally, led you and inspired you to write your book. Can you tell us more about what your book is about and what got you started on it? Yeah. Um, well, growing up, my biggest insecurity was probably everything about my culture. Um, I was afraid to bring friends home because they'd all see the things my parents were hoarding for reusing or be daunted by the weird smells of our yeah. food and incense. <laughs> so I really wrote this book as an attempt to help normalize observing these weird things, not the weird things itself, but observing them across different cultures and hopefully convey the message of, you know what, hey, it's okay to live differently from your classmates or it's okay that grandma always baits you and your friends with a Danish cookie tin only to have you find sewing kits inside. Oh, yeah, we still do that. (laughs) (laughs) Tins are so handy and useful. They're so big. (laughs) Some things are generational. And I think back about how I love the word that you use, normalize. And definitely heard a lot of racist comments in the past about like ching chong, why are our eyes so small, so squinty when we're being drawn, our eyes are like slits, or being made fun of for having certain foods and things like that. And you know, that was kind of like the first third of what I how I experienced culture and feeling embarrassed embarrassed about it and then the second third for me I think I'm in the third third but the second third was meeting other Asian kids in high school and then seeing that they had similar type of upbringings and then going into university and adulthood where now we have things like subtle Asian traits on Facebook it's a Facebook group where I think there's over a million Asian people primarily who participate in this group and have memes or have stories and experiences about their Asian families and upbringings. And it's so relatable. And I think that was actually what kickstarted me to feel more in tune with my Asian side, more normalized with my Asian side, because Mm -hmm. people started talking about it. People started talking about their experiences, what they feel about their culture and that I think is really powerful. Okay, this probably sounds a little biased because I'm a therapist. So me saying, oh, when you talk about it, it's a lot better because then <laughs> people relate, people normalize. But it's true. You know, when you really hold things in and you don't talk about it, you, it feels so isolating and it feels so alone. But when I read these stories or talk about experiences my other friends or classmates or just people online talk about, I feel a lot more closer because we're kind of the first or second generation of kids or adults, whatever you want to say, that where we grew up in a Western society. Many of our parents are immigrants. And even if our parents were immigrants, they might still have a lot of the Asian values and cultures passed down from their parents. But we're also going to be one of the first or second generation of people who are going to probably raise kids up in a Western society with a different type of viewpoint that's not purely traditional. So that's me going on a bit of a tangent. But when I all your book and I saw you write about it on Facebook it really resonated with me and I really appreciate that you're talking about things that a lot of us grew up with but are only starting to talk about the last couple of years 
And I know that in this book, you referenced to your grandma. Tell us more about your relationship with your grandma. <laughs> My grandma is probably the sweetest person I know. Um, I grew up very connected with her and I would visit her in China every summer holiday. Um, she was very traditional, uh, only drinking hot beverages and playing mahjongs uh -huh. for hours, you know, hours at a time. She'll have no problem just going almost all night. Um, she would also show up in my room unannounced while carrying a plate of fruits and shove red envelopes in my direction whenever I left her house. Uh, we expressed our love very differently, though. Um, I expressed my love for her verbally, and she through her actions. Um, my grandma never said I love you, but I heard it loud and clear when I was in her presence. I think a lot of us who might be listening are nodding, thinking, yep, <laughs> probably same here. <laughs> it's not about the hugs, not about the I love yous, but more about here's some fruit that I cut for you. Make sure you bring a jacket when you go outside. Drink more water, but only hot water. Here's some soup that doesn't taste good, but you should drink it anyway. <laughs> Tastes like medicine. And I talked about it in another episode where we had a similar topic, but for our parents, it was always about survival. That's what they learned growing up. So that's what they're going to teach and instill instill in us they wanted to make sure we have fruitful lives that we can survive that we can do well because those are things they wanted for themselves and they couldn't get it within their means because life was very different 30 40 years ago but they want yeah. us to be able to do it now exactly and i just think that priorities have shifted um whereas there is, is survival for us we no longer have that level of struggle that they had um, my mom had a master's in sociology and came to canada and learned to be a dental assistant because that's what paid the bills having that kind of different priorities really it can i think leave people blindsided um, when i told my mom about our cultural differences and how it impacted me her response was just you know, suck it up. It's not a big deal. But like, because I think to her, it really wasn't. She was getting her sustenance and it was keeping her alive. And that's all she really thought about. Whereas now we are in better conditions and more aware of mental health and, you know, social justice and these kind of topics. And we're more aware that we're aware that only by speaking to it and fighting for what's important to us will help us reach that level of self-actualization. Thanks for that, Daniel. And I'm out of curiosity, when you told your parents about this book and that it's in production, you wrote it, what was their response to this? <laughs> well, first of all, um, they said, don't tell your grandma you called her weird. <laughs> <laughs> but second, I don't think they really understood my motivation towards writing the book. Mm -hmm. um, I think because these things are so normalized to them that they don't really realize there's the potential of its healing powers or what it can do for diasporic children or people like us. Um, 
And because they never grew up with something similar, and as you mentioned before, they spent their entire lives just focusing on one thing specifically, and that being surviving, um, they don't really realize our need for this normalization and this healing almost. Um, so explaining, having that conversation to them and explaining that, you know what, like that displacement has caused a sense of, or rather a lack of belonging for me was very interesting because it was something that they felt fundamentally, but just not something that they realized or recognized. Um, so I guess the emotions attached to my book from my parents were first, they were weirded out by it. Um, they didn't understand why I was doing it until finally they began to discover within themselves as well that there is a need um, and now they're nothing but supportive. I'm really glad to hear that, especially, you know, you talk about at first they were weirded out by it and eventually supported. And I see it as they only know what they know. So when we are able to be patient and to explain things to our parents or to other people, to show them what our perspective looks like. And at this point, I'm not just talking about culture. I'm talking about just differences in expectations, differences in perspectives. People might not see things the way we do right away, but when we take the time to carefully and respectfully explain our point of view, it allows other people to, they might not be completely receptive, but at least be open-minded or to think about and consider what you're trying to tell them which is why I really appreciate the work you're doing in your book, Daniel, about the acceptance for the different, because everyone is different, no matter if you're a minority, a majority, no matter how you might identify as, every single person is different. And being able to work towards acceptance for each person, I think is really empowering and an ability for us to you know, as corny as it sounds, have a more peaceful and open world, which is Thank you. the goal I like to see at the end of yeah. the day. But, you know, each time we have conversations like these, each time someone talks about their experiences like you are with your book, it's great. Like I think about the kids who get to grow up reading your book. I mean, I, I didn't grow up seeing a lot of books about Asian kids or about Asian culture. So you're doing great work there. And one of my final Thank questions you. for you, Daniel, is why is it important for us to consider reconnecting with our history or learning about it? And in this case, about our cultural history. Well, I think I can only speak for my own reason for wanting to reconnect to my ethnic roots. But I truly believe that learning about our histories can help find a sense of belonging for those in cultural limbo. Um, I grew up feeling very alienated, alienated from my culture, um, and I struggled between accepting my differences and wanting to fit in. Um, 
I didn't want to bring Asian sausages to school. I wanted to have that tuna sandwich as well. But, mm-hmm. you know, having that difference um, and understanding. Um, well, I can only speak to my own reason for wanting to reconnect with my ethnic roots, but I truly believe that learning about our histories and can help find a sense of belonging for those in cultural limbo. I grew up feeling very alienated alienated from my culture, and I struggled a lot between accepting my differences and wanting to fit in. Um, I felt displaced throughout my childhood, and my roots and culture became a barrier between me and the people around me. I think understanding and accepting our histories can help battle the cultural dysphoria and shatter the barrier between differences and self-acceptance. I love that because there can be a lot of barriers that we might not take so seriously. You know, oh, it is what it is. People were racist back then. Whatever. They should know better now. But I think when we look past those moments or even small moments where we might have felt ashamed one day for bringing our thermos to school or things like looking at someone else and wishing you looked like them, no matter what it might be, some form of displacement or some form of shame or some form of comparison has impacted each of us in the way we see the world and the way we see ourselves most importantly. So I encourage everyone to take these moments to recognize that it sucked when we felt a certain way of shame or guilt or embarrassment, but it's also a normal part of experiencing differences, of learning about differences, and not to just necessarily brush past it. So thank you again, Daniel, for sharing your book with us. Can you tell us more about when it'll be released or how we can find or support you? Thanks, Jervin. Um, my book was actually just fully funded on Kickstarter. And for next steps, I'm currently in progress, a process of finding a manufacturer. Um, once everything is printed, I'll have it shipped over for final distributions. The deadline currently, or the timeline set currently, is to have it delivered by December for the backers first. And then hopefully by January, it will be up on its own platform for vending. That is so exciting. Oh my God. It's, I think you're one of the first people I know. Okay, well, my brother has a book, but you're like one of my first friends that I know who has something like this. And I love the message behind it. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. And to support my podcast and help reach others, please follow and share it with anyone looking to learn more about mental health. For any listeners who are visual learners or would like some more resources, I invite you to read my blog post on Shervin.ca and to follow my Twitter at HelloShervin and my Instagram at TherapyWithShervin for updates. See you later, everyone. Take care. Thank you.